This section of my Bible in chapter 4 has a heading, a plea for purity. A plea for purity. As with many of Paul's letters, after sound doctrine and sound teaching comes a call to right living. And not just moral living, not just being a good human being, but living with power and authority that comes from God alone and tells a story, the story, to a world that desperately needs hope. A plea for purity. I remember a conference many years back. I don't remember a lot from that pastor's conference, but I remember one thing that was said. Purity equals power. Purity equals power. What does it mean to be pure? In a world of objective morality, isn't it up to every individual? Don't we get to decide for ourselves what is pure, what is good, what is right? That's what the world would say, but that should not be the case with Christ's church. Unfortunately, the church by and large has either lost or neglected this pursuit of personal purity, and because of that, we have lost our power. Is the church today influenced by the world, or is it influencing the world? Are we being conformed to the culture around us, or are we seeing the culture transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I would contend that we are doing a lot more conforming than we are seeing the world transformed. And I think if we pause for a moment and we look for the root cause, I think a big part of it is a lack of personal purity in our own lives. Paul's words in chapter 4 are a call to practical purity. And it's a continuation of his prayer from chapter 3. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul prays not only for the church in Thessalonica, but for us. He says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints blameless in holiness. Let's look at verse 1 in chapter 4. Again, Paul, Paul continues, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. How you ought to walk, meaning how you ought to to live. You should abound more and more. Hasn't that been a continual theme in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians? You are doing so well. Paul had heard from Timothy that despite the persecution that surrounded this very young church, they were thriving. They were thriving in the issue of faith that leads to good works And they were thriving in their love for one another and those who are on the outside, those who do not know God. Paul says, you abound in this, but abound even more. 
That's the sanctification that Paul is talking about as he continues his letter. You have grown so much in Christ, he wants to do so much more in your lives. Nobody has arrived. Doesn't matter how long you have been walking with the Lord, we are continually, continually being made into the image of Christ. For what purpose? For the good of one another and for the glory of God. That's sanctification. It's being set apart for God's special use. And as he sets us apart, he's changing us and transforming us. That's the more and more Paul is talking about. We dealt last week with abounding in love, where we asked the question, what causes a man like Paul to travel thousands of miles and be beaten and thrown in, in prison and abused and talked ill of? And continue to love those who abuse him. It's the love of Christ overflowing in his life. It's not his own love. It's not his own affection for the lost. It's simply the overflow of Christ's love in his life. Abounding more and more in the love of God. Paul says, you received from us. Now, if you would, look at verse 9, because I think that connects to verse 1. Paul says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by who? Taught by God. Do you realize that? That your pastor is not the one who exclusively teaches you. This is one brief moment that we have in your week to share God's word, but God is your teacher. We are his disciples, and he is the best teacher. And Paul says, you received from us, in verse 1, and you are taught by God. This is something that's been coming up in our men's study quite a bit. And I think it's something that we really need to wrap our minds around. God is our teacher and sometimes the lessons he teaches us are difficult. They're hard to learn. It allows us a right thinking about trials and the difficult things that the Lord pulls us through helps us to be good students because God allows us to experience situations where it is difficult to live out the truth that he has set before us. I believe, again, this is my personal opinion, God will always allow at least one person in our life who is very difficult to love. Don't look next to you. If, if you don't have that one person, you are that person. But <laughs> the, there is always going to be that person in your life where God is stretching you to learn to love. He is always going to allow these situations in our lives that are just bigger than ourselves so that we will learn and grow in just taking him at his word. You saw that with the disciples, right? I know I bring this up all the, all the time, but it's so important because I think we get discouraged 
because we find ourselves in places where it's hard to take God at his word, but that's exactly how he trains us up. If it was easy to believe him, would we ever grow in faith? If he had never allowed us to get into situations that were simply bigger than anything we could handle, would that grow our faith? Don't be surprised when life is difficult. Christian, this life is a life of testing because God loves us. What did Jesus say to the disciples as he was teaching this crowd of 5,000 And that was just the men. There were women and children as well. So that crowd was much larger larger than 5,000. After he was done teaching and it became late in the evening, the disciples came to Jesus and said, it's time to send them home. There's no food here. Send them home. And what did Jesus say to them? You feed them. That seems like an impossibility, doesn't it? In that moment, the disciples had to think to themselves, what is he asking us? He's asking us to do the impossible. And then Jesus fed them. He fed the crowds. He was teaching the disciples to keep their eyes on him, the creator of all things, the provider of all things, who could meet each person's need right where they are at. They did not understand the manner of man Jesus was in that moment. When Jesus brings them out into the sea and the waves are crashing and they think they're going to die and Jesus is asleep in the boat, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing with his disciples. He was training them to look to him, to trust him. O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? And he spoke to the wind and the waves, and they became calm. Do not be surprised that our life is a life of testing because God wants us to abound in love and abound in faith. We want to grow more and more into the image of Christ. Now, we dealt with the issue of love last week, but look at what Paul's talking about this morning. He says that you should abound more and more just as you received from us how you ought to walk and do what? Please God. Now, first off, he says you received. And I want to pause here for a second because I think there's a lot of emphasis placed on good preaching. Rightly so. The purpose of the pulpit is to teach the word of God. And if that's not happening in the pulpit, find a place where it is. But there's so much emphasis placed on good preaching. Let me ask you this. What about good listening? Often you hear, oh, we're not getting fed here, or the sermons are not deep here, or it's not interesting enough, or it's not entertaining enough. Those are some of the things that you hear in the evangelical church today. Commentary on the preaching, but we often forget the role of the listener. That we have a part to play when we hear God's word, not just preached from the pulpit, but we learned already that God teaches us. Do we receive? 
no matter, this is what on, one uh, commentator says, no matter how well studied, well written, or well delivered a sermon may be, the attitude of the listener will always be crucial in whether or not it speaks to your heart. What's your attitude this morning? Because in this culture, we come with a lens of criticism. But are we ready to receive if we truly believe this is God's word to us? Again, not just how we receive a sermon, but how we receive God's instruction. And what did this church receive from Paul and his companions? How they ought to walk and that they must live to please God. Again, do we, do we think about pleasing God or do we wake up in the morning asking, how can I please myself today? Are we concerned more about our own pleasure or do we wonder, God, what pleases you? Because I, I think this is kind of the antidote to legalism. I think when people... Think about this. What do you mean pleasing God? He loves me. I'm his child. I've been forgiven. I believe in grace alone through Christ alone. Guys, we're not earning God's favor. We're not earning God's love, but there are ways that we live. There's ways that we walk that either please God or displease him. There are ways that we live that we often don't think about that bring joy to God's heart. Again, it's not an issue of earning God's love, but I will say this, this is where purity begins. It's built on the foundation of, I desire to please the one who gave everything for me. I want to know what pleases him, and I want to do that. Paul made mention of this when he said, his goal isn't to please men, but to please God. The idea of pleasing God. Now, this, this idea of just pleasing God, it's not something new, right? Since the beginning of time, humans have been trying to please their gods. We see that throughout the Old Testament. I want to please my deity or my God so that I can get what? What I want out of him. If I have to sacrifice my own child to get what I want out of my God, I will do that. We saw that with Elijah when he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal were trying to conjure up a response from their false god. They even turned to cutting themselves to get their god to do what they wanted him to do. But Baal tells us what pleases the one true God. Our God, the maker of heaven and earth and everything in it. This is what pleases God. This is what leads to personal purity. Look at verse 2. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now that word used for commandments, I know our mind immediately goes to the Ten Commandments. Or maybe the law. But the word that's used here is not really common in the New Testament. It's instructions passed down from one soldier to another, coming down from a commanding officer, going to the one soldier, and then being passed down throughout the whole army. 
He says, you know the instructions we passed on to you, which we received from who? Jesus himself. In John 8, 28, Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know what I, that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. If you're wondering, how do I please God? Look at the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I do nothing outside the will of my Father. I always do those things that please Him. What is a life of purity? Life, a life of purity is a life dedicating to following Jesus, allowing Him to take the lead. How do we please God? We take him at his word. In Hebrews eleven six, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Let me ask you again, do you desire to please God? Is that even something that is on your radar this morning? Have you thought about that today in any way, shape, or form? Because a life of purity is a life of faithful obedience born out of a deep desire to please our master. Not to get something out of him, but simply because of what he has done for us. And that's my fear in my own life and my fear as I approach you with this this morning, that very little thought is given to this. We are so self-consumed about what brings us pleasure that we're not deeply concerned about what pleases God. And that's not the life of a disciple. Followers of Christ need to start following Christ. I mean, that sounds pretty basic, right? Followers of Christ need to follow him. Why do you call me master, Jesus says, and you do not do the things that I say? Why do you call me Lord, but you do not do the things that I say? And I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he would also say, why do you call me master and you don't care what I have to say? You're not concerned about what I've already said. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 3. For this is the will of God. Have you ever asked the question, God, what's my purpose? Why am I here? Why did you give me breath? What are you doing in my life? What's that next big thing for me? What do you have planned for me? God, what's my purpose? Show me. He has. This is the will of God to form you into the image of his son for the good of those around you in the glory of God. That is your purpose in this world. And sometimes it's a slow process. Sometimes it's a mundane process. Often it happens in those really boring times of life. 
but it's not about what he wants you to do. It's about what, who he wants you to be. When we ask, what is my purpose? We're usually asking, what does God want me to do? But again, it isn't one thing. It's everything. His plan for you is to model to this world what humanity looks like when it's been redeemed. What humanity was always originally supposed to be. And that moves us into a very specific ethic that should absolutely set the church apart from a fallen world. And again, we're back to sexual purity. Paul says that you should abstain from sexual immorality. He says God's will is to sanctify you, to set you apart from this fallen world, to live a distinctly different life, a life of power and purpose that is far different than the lives that are being led in the world today. And Paul brings it back again to sexual purity. Why? Why does he bring that up? Why does he keep coming back to this? And it's not just Paul. If you remember the Jerusalem council, they were meeting together. Gentiles were becoming saved. The power of God was being poured out on non-Jews. It was mind-blowing to them. And then many Jewish believers started to heap rules and regulations on them. And so there was a council in Jerusalem as they tried to decide, okay, what do we have for these Gentile believers? Do they need to be circumcised to be saved? And so as they met, they come to, they met in prayer, they came to this decision and wrote a letter to the Gentile believers in Antioch and Syria. And in Acts 15, 28, in that letter it read, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Again, these weren't issues of salvation. These were issues of sanctification. As followers of Jesus, this is what's important for you in the midst of your culture. That's what Paul and this council is communicating to this early church, these early churches. And he says this in verse 29, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from what? Sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. So what was the concern here? Guys, the sexual ethic in the Roman Empire in the first century, specifically in Greece, it was not much different than our sexual ethic now. The Thessalonian believers, they were surrounded by, and many of them came out of a lifestyle and a culture where there was very few guardrails put up surrounding sexuality. The rule was kind of, if it feels good, do it. 
If it's in your heart to do it and it doesn't bring too much harm, go ahead and do it. It was not uncommon for a man to even have a female slave because slavery was just rampant in the Roman Empire in the first century. Rome had conquered many nations, and many of those conquered nations, many of those citizens became slaves. And it was not uncommon for a Roman citizen, a man, to have a female slave or a concubine who was exclusively his for sexual gratification outside of his marriage. His wife was there to take care of the children, and his concubine was there to meet his sexual needs. The idea of sexual sin to them was foreign. It was just a part of normal life. Now, you may say, yeah, that sounds a lot like America today. We may not have our concubines. And I realize the youth are in the service today, so I'm trying to be mindful of that. But men and women, they can fulfill their sexual urges in the privacy of their home, home without their spouses knowing. Very simply. And it's an epidemic today. See, this idea when it comes to sexuality, that has not always been in the case. This, this, uh, this sexual revolution that the United States has experienced. Our sexual revolution, I'd call it a devolution, began in the 60s and the 70s, looking around at some of you, you were around for this. We saw this dramatic increase in the acceptance of sex outside of a traditional heterosexual monogamous relationship. And then you saw the normalization of pornography and premarital sex and homosexuality and alternative forms of sexuality and the legalization of abortion and, and the, just the mass explosion of contraceptives. It became far easier to be sexually free without the so-called consequences of sex. But let me make this, this as simple as I possibly can. At its core, the sexual revolution was rebellion against God and his good plan for humanity. And that's where the Christian must make a decision. Do we refuse to take our standards from our culture and take God at his word in all areas, but definitely in the area of sexual purity, or do we give in to the cultural pressure and our own sinful desires? And then we come full circle. Do we live to please God or ourselves? Do we seek to please God or please man? Do we pursue purity and power or do we yield to the pervasive societal norms? That's the pressure today. Conform to the world's sexual ethic. Or you're a bigot. Or you're archaic in your thinking. We have to come to the conclusion in our own lives. Do we believe that God's good plan for marriage and sex within the safety of marriage is good and right and healthy and anything outside of it is broken and perverse and harmful? 
or do we buy into the world's sexual ethic? Look at what Paul says in verse 4. He says that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. What's Paul talking about? Self-control. He says in verse 5, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. He says that we should know how to control our bodies in holiness and honor, regardless of what my flesh wants, regardless of what my flesh demands, I yield my desire to God's will. Is that your heart? Young people, no amount of purity conferences are going to guide you into sexual purity if you don't care about pleasing God. It doesn't matter. We can talk about the consequences of sexual freedom, but if our heart isn't to honor God and please Him, and we don't care about being transformed into the image of Christ, we don't want to see the power of God in our lives, if we don't want that, the issue of sexual purity can't even be discussed. You know, there's a, a big trend today because I think throughout the sexual revolution, people are finally wising up and seeing that multiple partners over the span of a lifetime actually is really harmful to not only yourself, but to your society. And so there is this, this I guess, re, returning to the middle, I don't know. But godless men and women are saying, you know what, maybe the the Bible had something right, but they're returning to the morality of Scripture and not the God of Scripture, and there's no life in that. The issue here is, do we want to please God? Is that our desire? Is God's plan for human flourishing right and good? Or is what the world is peddling the standard that we want to live by? As a man who has lived in both worlds, I cannot say strongly enough that God's plan for marriage So good and right that anything that this world is selling you needs to be trashed. And I'm not saying marriage becomes perfect or easy just because we abide by God's direction for it. Sometimes marriage is extremely difficult. But if both of you, again, are being conformed to the image of Christ, if both of you desire to please God above all else, that's where there's life. That's where there's purpose. That's where there's meaning. Right thinking and right living in the area of sex leads to right relationships, healthy relationships. And sexual sin, it breaks those relationships down. corrupts them at the most fundamental levels. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. 
He doesn't say fight sexual immorality. He says, like Joseph, flee sexual immorality. Run for, from it. For every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he com- who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, in your spirit, Spirit, which are God's. Now, I know that in a group this big, some of you could care less about any of this, but if you are a born-again believer filled with the Spirit of God and you are struggling with sexual purity, God wants to set you free from that. That's the con- contrast that Paul is giving here. He's saying there's a life of self-control for the sake of others and the glory of God, but on the other side of that is passion of lust that looks more like the world than it does Christ. Those are the two sides of, of this argument. And those passions of lust literally translate to painful desires. The idea is an overmastering feeling in which the individual is brought along by evil as though they are a passive instrument. And I know, again, with a group this size, some of you sitting here today feel like you are not in control of your desires. And you have feasted on a steady diet of just explicit material. Let's be honest. I know that God's word for you today is be delivered from that. Turn from it. You say, oh, I'm powerless. Really? Scripture says, have you resisted sin to the point of shedding blood? Talk to somebody. Be accountable to a spouse. Come talk to us. Let's fight this fight together. One commentator writes, the passion of lust is the opposite of holiness and honor. Sexual desire in itself is good. God made it in the beginning. It has its proper place, but it was made to be guided by two concerns. Honor towards the other person. That means value. You value that individual. And the other is holiness towards God. You desire to please God with your life. Sexual desire outside of a value for that individual and a desire to please God is lust. Lust is what that sexual desire becomes when that honor and that holiness are missing from it. And I won't belabor this point much longer, but again, the best analogy that I can think of, I heard many years ago, sex is good and right in its rightful place. It's like fire. When fire is in the fireplace, it has the ability to heat the whole home. But if you take the fire out of the fireplace and you put it in the center of a bedroom, it can burn the whole house down. Look at what Paul says in verse 6. He says, in this area, no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. Now I wrestled with this verse. 
Paul is talking about people who take advantage of others in the area of sexuality. And as I prayed through this and, and wrestled with it again, I, the church desperately needs a right response to those who have grown up in a hypersexualized world. There are young people who have grown up and have been exposed to and have been abused that need a safe place for healing and restoration. And it is my conviction that that needs to take place in the church. This should be a safe place for healing, for forgiveness, for understanding what God's good and perfect plan is for your life. So if you are a young person and your mind has been distorted by the sexual ethic of this world, if someone has harmed you, if you've been exposed to pornography at a very young age, that has lasting effects on how we look at sexuality. This needs to be a place of healing and forgiveness as we learn what God's good and perfect plan is for your life. Ladies, if you need somebody to talk to, there are women in our fellowship that we would be happy to point you to, that would love to walk with you as you learn what God's plan is for your life. As it is with our young men. That being said, there are also those in this world who know what they are doing, and they know what they are doing is wrong, and they don't care who they prey on. In fact, they look for the weak and the vulnerable inside any community, and they are advocates for perversion. They're evangelists for evil. There's those in our society that have picked up the mantle of just sexual deviancy, and they're peddling it like it's a, a lifestyle worthy of being lived. They're the victimizers. And I'm going to say this again, not to make you guys uncomfortable, but in a group this size, hear me. If you are a victimizer, you are at war with God. And he will have justice. Hear God's warning through Peter in 2 Peter 2 verse 5. This is from the Christian Standard Bible. And if he didn't spare the ancient world, Peter writes, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly, and if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant people, they are not afraid to slander the glorious ones. 
And then in verse 14, they have eyes full of idolatry that never stop looking for sin. They seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed. Children under a curse. Not referring to their ages, but children of wrath. Men and women born under a curse, living out that curse of sin. They have appetites for evil, taking advantage of others, especially the weak. If that's your heart here, this morning, we're watching. That does not belong here. And I, and I want to say you don't belong here. You do in the sense that you need to hear, hear the gospel and you need to repent. But the statistics surrounding child sexual abuse are staggering. you have an appetite for evil, this is not the place for you. But God is a forgiving God. Look at verse 7. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Now let me say this. We are all fighting our appetites for evil, right? We live with our flesh. We wake up in the morning and we're constantly being reminded that our flesh is making demands. But that's a little different than those who are looking to victimize. But again, we have come back to Paul's central theme we have been called as Christians to be set apart. We have called to, been called to be distinct. We've been called to be unlike anything else in this world. For the Christian, to live any other way is to live in contradiction to who we are. So if we're living in sexual sin and we're a born-again believer, we are living in a way that's contrary to who we were created to be and who we are in Christ. And that is full of, and I don't have to tell you because you're experiencing it now, if you're fighting this, it's a life of unrest, instability, confusion, discouragement, relationships don't make sense. It's a life where things just never seem to fall into place. And then we turn to blame. We blame maybe our parents or the government or our boss or the stress or everyone else. And we simply need to trust God and his plan. To live in rebellion to God as an unbeliever is destructive. It's empty. But to live that way with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, it's pure misery. Because the Holy Spirit is calling us to something more and we resist Him. So again, I know this has been heavy-handed this morning. But because of the culture we live in, there needs to be a clarion call out of a lifestyle of sin and into a lifestyle of pleasing God. 
Let's close here, verse 9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life. To mind your own business. To work with your own hands as we command you. That you may walk properly toward those who are outside. That you may lack nothing. I love this part of the passage. Work hard and mind your own business is kind of what Paul's saying. I feel like Paul could travel through time right now and speak these words to, to this, this nation, to the church today. Lead a quiet life so that you may behave properly towards those who are outside of the faith and work hard so you're not dependent on anyone and mind your business. <laughs> See, it seems that there was a group in this church. There's a group of Christian Thessalonians that warranted this warning. Because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul continued to write about this. He says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but your busy bodies. Not those who are now those are, who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Idle hands lead to loud mouths. There is so much criticism in the church today because we have too much free time on our hands. We are more concerned about how others are living because we're not paying attention to our own lives. And I've experienced it on both sides, I've done it, and I've been on the, the receiving end of it. Oftentimes, within any church, those who complain the most are the ones who are doing the least. Idle hands lead to loud mouths. If you're in this place where everyone is under a microscope with you, you hyper-analyze every decision that everyone else makes, I would encourage you, maybe mind your own business. Now, some people, they are our business. My kids, after this, I know it may be a temptation. Dad, mind your own business. You said it Sunday morning. <laughs> no, your business is my business. And there's certain situations as a community of believers, in some sense, our business is one another's business, but in the context of love and care and concern. When it's absence of, absent of love and care and concern, then it's simply meddling. And Paul says to this church who's doing so well, guys, work hard and stop meddling in one another's lives. This is so important. It doesn't mean that we don't help people when they're in need, right? But there's a difference between helping somebody get to a place where they're sustainable and then there's perpetual need. Those who live in that constant state of need because they are unwilling to work. 
Guys, this isn't about capitalism or socialism. This is about God's kingdom. <laughs> and he says very clearly, those who do not work do not eat. Someone get the door. I'll close with this. One commentator says, it's an expression of love to support others who are in need, but it is also an expression of love to support ourselves so as not to need to be supported by others. It's okay to be in a place of need, but to live in that place of need because we're unwilling to put our hand to work not what we were created for and again that's what this is all about paul is calling the church of christ not an organization but born again followers of jesus be who you were created to be that's where human flourishing exists living to please god and not ourselves having self-control saying no to our flesh and yes to jesus that's purity that's power that's what this world needs to see. Not a church conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. So again, if God is calling you to step away from that vice today, do it. I don't have the power to. You don't. But God does. Turn away. Follow him. Let's pray.